0: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Dog Backwards. On our last episode, we talked about does God exist? And I had planned and scheduled to do how do we get from God to Jesus, and we'll have that coming up in a couple of weeks. But I just did a lecture for a group of college students uh, yesterday, and I really enjoyed it, and they seemed to enjoy it as well. And I covered the issue of not responding to skeptics, but mostly learning to be more skeptical yourself, looking at our faith with our own eyes instead of just believing everything that we've been told. This has really helped me grow in my own faith. So, I hope you enjoy it. We do talk about how we get from God to Jesus just briefly in this one, but we'll do a more fuller version of that coming soon. Thanks for listening. Leave a like and a review or whatever you do. I appreciate it. Yeah, so um, I, I was an atheist for a period of time, and, uh, but I, I was, like many atheists I know, Even though I said there was no God, I talked about him an awful lot. And uh, looking at my journals, it was all like angry at the God I didn't believe in. And nobody's like angry at Santa, right? Like you're not like, you don't get angry at things that you don't really believe in. But even though I said there was no God, there um, there was a time where I said there was no God. And if you don't think there's a God, then your morality reflects that. So since I had kind of come, I'd grown up in church, the whole idea of a preacher's kid being troublemaker, I like to think that I started that, right? Like, I want to take credit for being a troublesome kid. I, I sold drugs, I had my own house and a Porsche by the time I was 18 years old, and I just could not see myself going into the normal world. And so my the whole motto that I stole from James Dean was live fast, die young. So. I'm 40 now, and that like, that's, was a surprise because I never thought I would make it here, but God got a hold of my life and did some incredible things. Uh, tonight I want to talk to you about skepticism and being a skeptic, and I almost think that instead of just talking about like, how to deal with skeptics, I want to help make you a skeptic. Right? I want you to begin to ask better questions. There's nothing wrong with being skeptical. Skeptical, right? Did I say that right. There's nothing wrong with being skeptical. Uh, now, there is hyper skeptic skepticism, which we'll talk about here in a little bit. But for whatever reason, if you grew, how many of you have grown up in church? Like, there's a majority of you. We learn in Scripture a lot of times in this kind of environment where you come, you sit down, and somebody tells you, "Here is what you should think. Here is how you should feel about this." Here's how you should process this. And they do a lot of the heavy lifting for you. And I feel like when we do that, we rob you of the joy and the experience of trying to figure out what it is you believe. And each of us will will go on a journey. And I was visiting with somebody a while back and I started to talk about some of the things. I was like, you know, I got some questions. What about this? What about that? And they're like, man, you, you shouldn't ask those questions. It could weaken your faith. And that really just stuck in my crawl, right? It just seemed like, no it's not, because I don't think God is afraid of any questions that I have, right? I don't think God would be afraid of anything you can ask. And so I'm going to kick you into skeptical mode for just a little bit uh, to kind of get your brain fired. If you've got your Bible, turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. Second Peter Chapter two. I cheated, I'm already there because I knew I was going there, so I'm still not used to like this there's no like page turning because everybody just has it on their phone. And it takes me a while. Like, like I'm an old man or something, like they use new phones. <laughs> um Second Peter chapter two verse six it says, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. So here Paul is using Sodom and Gomorrah as an example of what will happen to people in hell. Now, if I was to ask you, how many of you believe that when somebody goes to hell, they're there forever? Most of you, that's That is the traditional Southern Baptist view. But do you guys know that is not the only view? That there are other views of hell that have some scriptural basis and actually can have a good argument. Now, there are verses that say, and the worm will uh, go on forever and ever, and the smoke will go up forever and ever, and the fire will not go out, but then we see verses like this, where it compares what happens to people in hell to the people in Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, are the people in Sodom and Gomorrah, are they still being destroyed right now? now Sodom and Gomorrah's gone. Like, I've been to Israel, you can go there. It's, it was reduced, right? So we know that those people are not still there, and so it's using this as an example of what happens in hell. Now, there are only three main verses that talk about hell being everlasting. But there are almost all the verses in the Old Testament dealing with the afterlife have a time period. It always deals with the destruction of the wicked. Now, destruction has an end point. Things are destroyed, right? And so, don't get nervous where I'm going with this, okay? So, (laughs) he's like, wait a minute, what did I bring in here? It's one of them liberal Christians. Um, But, the thing is, is none of you had probably thought too much about that before. And even think of like John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, whoever believes in Him shall not perish. Perish, doesn't that sound like they're going to end? Perishing sounds like something's going to be finalized. In fact, everlasting life is only given to believers. Every time you read about everlasting life, it's only about those who go to heaven. Because one of the things that you receive when you become a believer is everlasting life. That means the other people don't have everlasting life. Well now that's an interesting view and so all I want you to know is go, oh there's a different view and I'm not going to tell you which one I believe. I've been, I got traditional views on everything as well. There's another guy who believed this. It's called annihilationism. It means that people spend time in hell equal to their whatever crime they committed. So whatever they did, you know, so like Hitler's going to be burning for a long time and somebody else, not for long, that the time meets the crime. There was another guy who had this view. His name was Ignatius of Antioch. If you've ever, if you're taking notes, write down Ignatius of Antioch. It's a fascinating person to know. He is one of the earliest church fathers that we know of. So, we all know the Apostle John. The Apostle John had a disciple. And, of course, John is the closest disciple to Jesus. Did you know that? He's like in the inner circle, and he's like right next to Jesus. In fact, that's why when he writes in the Gospel of John, he won't even name himself. He just says, the one that Jesus loves. He won't even use his own name. But John is right there next to Jesus. Ignatius is the closest disciple to John. And we have his writings. Did you guys know that? That just barely removed from Jesus. Ignatius lived in 50 AD, so he's born just a little bit after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And we have his writings, and he writes to, like, the letter to Ephesians. He writes that church, and he's giving them instruction and hope. He held this view of annihilationism. Now, there's more areas like this where maybe we just haven't piqued our interest, and we've never examined these things, and my hope is is whatever side you fall on, because look, you can be a Christian and have the view that hell is eternal, and that's a good view. And you can be a Christian and have the view that it has a limited time frame. Good godly people have held both views. But oftentimes when we grow up within in a denomination, we only hear one particular view. And so anytime we hear something that opposes it, We just go, oh, that's wrong. But what I hope is as you begin to think about subjects of faith and the Bible and all these things, that you do your own research and go on your own journey so that when you know it, you know it. Instead of somebody just telling you, and this is actually commanded to us by Scripture. Scripture tells us to test everything. Hold on to the good, let go of every kind of evil. I have dedicated my life to going, I don't care what I've been told, I only want to know what the Bible says. I, I have this view many times, I think, because of my Southern Baptist upbringing. I'm 40, and when I was growing up, our, uh, I was in elementary or maybe just about to start middle school, we went on a youth camp and we had a sock hop. Does anybody know what a sock hop is? It's what old people did, right, a long time ago for dancing. Right? Before twerking, there was sock hops. And it was real risque because you took your shoes off and you did this. right? And you just had fun. And so she played some 60s music and all the little kids from the Baptist church did a sock hop. She came this close to getting fired. She got reprimanded. She was called in the pastor's office. You know why? Baptists Baptist don't dance. <laughs> that was a rule I heard my whole life growing up. And it's not like I went to some small country Baptist church. My dad was the associate and youth pastor at First Baptist Church Tulsa, right? So a large church, 2,000 people. And then there were other rules. We don't play cards, because cards are the devil, right? If you like blackjack, well, you need to get saved right now. We're going to go baptize you in the shallow water outside, right? And I would go play. I'd go to my grandma's, and I would say, Grandma, can we play... Uh, The Old Maid, which is a card game, you don't want to get the Old Maid. And she goes, we can't do that. That's too close to playing poker. (laughs) And so I thought these were Bible rules. Turns out the reason Baptists don't dance is because old white guys make the rules and they couldn't dance. So they're like, if we can't do it, nobody can do it, right? There's other areas. What do you think about end times? Now we all know this is an area, right? where everybody has different opinions. Everybody's got different views. And when it comes to eschatology, there's one rule that I go by, and eschatology is the fancy theology word for end time talk. When it comes to eschatology, everybody is wrong, right? So just know that, first and foremost, everybody's wrong. We don't exactly know what it's going to look like. The Bible just doesn't give us a clear enough answer. But there is a verse, and you don't have to turn there. Well, I guess you're not turning anyways. You can flick there on your phone. 1 Corinthians 15, 20, 25. It says, talking about Jesus, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. How many times can they say subjection in one verse? So what... 1 Corinthians 15.25 says that Jesus must reign. So He's reigning right now, right? He's in heaven. He's on His throne. He's reigning and ruling. It says He must reign until all enemies are put under His feet. Then He will return. So oftentimes if you maybe grew up and um, you had the idea that the world was just going to get worse and worse and worse until finally Jesus came back. Do you know that is a view that it did not enter into kind of Christendom until late 19th century, maybe early 20th century. And there was a couple of movies and some left-behind books that really kind of pushed that view into church, but that was not the historical view of end times. In fact, the Puritans, the Puritans were some early Christians in the Americans that they brought this insane hope with them and they believed that the world was going to get better and when they had got it to a certain point to where all of the places in the world reflected the rules and laws of God, then Jesus would return. It's called postmillennialism, right? That's the eschatology term for it. And so this verse here doesn't seem to say, hey, everything is going to get worse. There is a view that the world is going to get better. Now, I think this is a great view. In fact, I I struggled with anxiety and depression for many years. My depression was pretty bad. And as I began to, my personal view, I'm a post-millennialist, I'll tell you that one, is I think the world's actually going to get better. And you know what? If you look at 500-year gaps, it is getting better. Wherever Christianity has spread, and this is a historical fact, wherever Christianity has spread, the rights of women have improved. Slaves have been set free. Education has improved sanitary conditions have improved. The largest charities in the world are Christian charities, right? Wherever Christianity goes, you know that there is uh, some fighting going on in China right now and there are large amounts of people that are revolting against the government. You know one of the number one causes of that revolt against their oppressive ruling? is Christianity. Christianity is the one that is finally fighting back against that oppression the Christian churches in China are exploding, wherever Christianity goes. In fact, the reasons that we have books is because somebody wanted to make more Bibles. So, anytime an atheist says, well, I'm educated and I've read books and I can say there is no God, the only reason he can read a book and all the major Ivy League universities were originally seminaries. So the reason he got an education and can read a book is because Christianity in the first place. Right? So... Which one's true? I don't know. Ask better questions. Ask good questions. It's okay to go, you know, there are some things in faith that I'm really struggling with. And oftentimes what happens is we struggle silently and then we just back away from the church slowly. One of the reasons I became an atheist, or at least it's the person I use as a scapegoat for it, is when I was um, in high school, And I would go to Sunday school and the Sunday school teachers would sit there in their little circle and all the kids were sitting around in the circle and the teachers would sit next to each other and they had it orchestrated to where we were supposed to have like a big group discussion for 15 minutes and then we'd go to our small groups for 15 minutes. But the adult never led anything for those first 15 minutes. They would sit around and they would just talk. And the main leader, he was a lawyer who loved NASCAR. And he would sit there and talk to the other teachers. Yeah, you know, I saw that car going in (laughs) circles. Just kept going. I was like, yeah, circles. Right? He was so excited about it. Every week, this is what he talked about. And here I am, a young kid who goes, I don't know if I believe any of this stuff. Like, I know my dad has taught me this stuff my whole life, but then I see him come home and start talking about the Christians that he works with and how big of a jerks they are, right? Like, there were some real jerks that he had to work with. And I was like, confused, but they love Jesus. Nobody who loves Jesus is a bad person, right? I'm going to take a fair shot and say some of the people that have hurt you the most have been Christians. Some of the people who have lied to you the most, betrayed your trust. Girls, maybe you dated a guy you thought was a Christian guy. Turned out he just used that to come to church to try to meet girls. Right? They, they, they all got everybody. is looking down. Nobody wants to look at it. I don't know what you're talking about, Shannon. We don't like this guy. Don't bring him back. <laughs> and you've been damaged by Christian guys who treated you no better than a secular guy would have treated you. At least a secular guy would have been upfront about what he was looking for in the first place. And so we have to be careful, and we need to be aware. Look, there is a lot of things that we wrestle with. And I'm sitting in that Sunday school class and I'm so sick and tired of hearing about a stupid NASCAR. I- I've never loved Tide enough to put it on the windshield of my vehicle. And one day I just raised my hand and I says, I don't think God gives a crap about your NASCAR. Can I say that in here? Okay, okay. Right? <laughs> okay. I said, this is, I know, right? We're pushing the envelope. We're with college kids. Uh, too progressive. Too progressive for me. Uh, and he says, Caleb, I think you need to come sit by me. I says, why? He says, well, until you can learn to behave and be quiet and listen, you need to come sit by me. Well, I grabbed my best friend. He's been my best friend since kindergarten. He's still my best friend. I said, pedo, let's go. <laughs> he's like, all right. So he was always daring to roll. We told the Sunday school teacher that he was number one, and we walked out the door. I, uh, he called my dad, and... Had a conversation with my dad. Thankfully, he took my side. He's like, "Well, maybe you should stop wasting his time." My dad found me a youth pastor that he thought I would like, and I did. This guy, he was kind of into apologetics, which is defending your faith, and he began to teach me about certain things that answer some of these questions, like. How do I know this God is the only God? How come all the other gods throughout history aren't real gods? Like, How do I know any of this stuff? What does it mean to have faith? What does the Spirit feel like? How do I know if the Spirit's guiding me? How do I know if I should date this person or that? How do I know any of these things? And he was starting to answer my questions. And he encouraged me to go with my dad to Switzerland for a mission trip. And while I was there on the mission trip, he went to his garage. He had a gun in one hand and a Bible in the other. He put down the Bible, picked up the gun, and blew his brains out. He did that because he impregnated one of his students. And he couldn't live with the consequences of his actions. And that's when I became an atheist. So we have been damaged greatly many times by the church. And as you go and you do evangelism, one of the number one things you're going to have to do is apologize for the way other Christians have acted. Right? Because the world's full of neat little Christian boys and girls. And they've gone to church camp and they like Christian music, and they go to church, but they act like everybody else, and the world sees that. Most people are unimpressed with Christianity because most Christians are unimpressive, right? And I I don't want any more neat little godly boys and girls. I'm looking for good godly men and women. Like, there's a massive shortage. So we take for granted what we've been taught, but as you get older and you begin to read your Bible, you're going to begin to have questions. You might notice I have a tattoo or two, possibly an act of rebellion against a church that told me tattoos were sinful. Right? <laughs> Could be, I don't know. Um, but they did. They don't, have you heard that, right? Had, I still get that. If I go preach at a church that I've never been to before, because I'll go do revivals in like small country churches because I say yes to everything, right? And so I'm like, I will go do that. Um, My wife needs something, so I'll go preach somewhere, and and there you go. And when I don't know where I'm going, I wear long sleeves. And I'll start preaching. As soon as people are on board with me and they're like, oh, we kind of like this guy, then I roll up my sleeve just to see if there's a reaction. I don't get it like I used to. I don't get any of the, hmm, (laughs) I don't know about this. Um, But when I was a youth pastor, I was told if I got a tattoo, I need to hide it because I would be encouraging children to be sinful. I was like, I, I'm not encouraging them to be sinful. If I got one, they, you're, you can make your own decisions, right? I understand what they were saying. I didn't want to cause somebody to stumble. But these are the things that we have grown up just assuming. So if we assumed all those things, and if the generation before you assumed that dancing was bad and cars was bad and all these things and tattoos were of the devil. Now tattoos can be of the devil, right? So nuance, there are nuances in life. Right? So we need to be careful, because if you get a giant devil tattoo and 666 behind your ear, that's sinful, right? I led that guy to the Lord. I mean, I, you'd go to a tattoo shop, and I was doing ministry there. I didn't know how to do ministry. I still don't know how to do ministry. I just took pizza to him. Huh. I took pizza every week, and eventually I let his name was Alex. And Alex uh, had just lost his dad. He had the devil right here with 666 behind his ear. And I was able to lead him to the Lord. In fact, I held his hand as he passed away. He was in a car wreck, and I drove to Missouri. It was just me and him in a room. He coded six times. And I was so grateful that I was able to hold his hand and let him meet Jesus because of the ministry. It was incredible. But But if I was a traditional Christian, I wouldn't go there in the first place. I never ran into another pastor in the tattoo shops in an area where there was nothing but churches. Within a one to maybe two-mile radius, there was a minimum of ten churches in this area where I planted my church. And I never ran into another pastor trying to do ministry. Now, there were other Christians coming in there. And they would come and they'd get Jeremiah 29-11 tattooed on their arm. And I'd go, you know that's out of context, right? And then, <laughs> no one ever liked me. Um, <laughs> what about another one? So all I'm doing is I'm just going to throw questions, questions, questions. And I want your brain to start thinking be skeptical because that is the path to understanding and learning test everything so uh, southern Baptist churches um, the one that I was a youth pastor at for seven years they had a part of the contract that I had to sign that abstinence from alcohol was required in order to be on staff right now how many of you are 21 and older most of you right this side right this side's going to the bar afterwards. These guys are the DDs, right? So, just kidding. Just kidding. Now, what does the Bible say about alcohol? Does it forbid it? Do not, do not. Don't be a drunk. Don't be an idiot. Don't embarrass yourself and your God. As you begin to consume alcohol, your decision-making abilities lessen, and you're much more likely to do stupid things. So it's the Bible's way of saying, hey, if you drink alcohol, don't drink so much that you're an idiot, right? Don't be stupid. This is what my dad had been telling me my whole life, right? (laughs) Didn't know it was a biblical teaching. But what do churches say? Abstinence only. Has anyone ever heard that? I've heard sermons on it, and they go through all the verses. Now, there are verses on there. That wine is a brawler, right? These are, they're, they're there. And I agree with them. But I would never make a rule at a church that would keep Jesus and the disciples from being on staff at a church. This is how you know if it's a bad rule. Would Jesus be allowed to be on staff at your church? We're an elder-led church, which means uh, that there's not like one ring to rule them all. There's not one pastor who like governs everything. We have, um, well, we had three, one... Just left this last Sunday, but we have two more coming in, so we'll have four. And we make decisions together. Now, there is a verse that says uh, elders must be the husband of one wife. Does that mean they have to have a wife? No, it's a rule against polygamy, but you know what that's done? They've said, no, you can't be an elder unless you're married. Well, then Jesus can't be an elder in your church. So if any rule disqualifies Jesus, it's a bad rule. That we see in 1 Timothy chapter 5, you don't have to turn there, but Paul tells Timothy... Stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. I've heard all the arguments. And the thing is, is I'm so tired of fighting these dumb battles. I've had pastors sit down and tell me, Jesus drank grape juice. (laughs) The word in Hebrew means grape juice. I says, no, it doesn't. There's a word for grape juice. This is it. This is the word for wine. Wine is fermented grape juice. It's not like you just left it out and accidentally, like, oh no, spit it out, right? (laughs) So what we suffer is, we suffer from just wanting to be told what to think. We suffer from just being, wanting to be told, this is difficult, solve this problem for me. I don't want to solve the problems for you. Because if I do that, I haven't solved anything. All I've done is convince you that my viewpoint is better than yours. And if I can talk you into my viewpoint, somebody else can talk you out of it. What I want you to do is to have your own faith that is well thought out, that is well reasoned, that is studied, that's going to require something. W-O-R-K. It's going to take work. It's going to take opening up your Bible. You have greater access to great, incredible, godly teachers. Histories of books and uh, commentaries written by some of the greatest biblical thinkers throughout history. But we'll settle for a YouTube video that's four minutes long with animations and funny music. As Pink Floyd said, right? As Pink Floyd said, we've entertained ourselves to death. We've just... Christianity should be the most creative most thoughtful, most deep-seated, intellectual view of anything else out there. You know, uh, if you wanted to be a pastor about 100, 120 years ago, you couldn't become a pastor unless you could debate in Greek. You couldn't just have to read it. You had to be able to bait, debate and argue your point. We don't have that. I can't do that, right? I, I wouldn't allow it to be one. So I want us to be skeptical. But there are things that we can hold as a firm foundation and we just don't we're not just skeptical for the sake of being skeptical. What are the things that we can know for certain? Can we know that God exists for certain? Is there proof that God exists? Absolutely. A lot of Christians will say and I hear even Christian apologists um William Lane Craig will be one, and I love William Lane Craig. He's a genius. He's forgotten more than I'll ever know, right? He's a smart dude. But he'll say things, well, we can't know anything for certain. The Bible says we can. The Bible says that we should be certain about our faith. You want to know how you can prove that God exists? Because without God, you can't prove anything. What does that mean? What does that mean? So I just gave a little talk and I used logic and reasoning to try to make a point. Right? And this is what we talked about at um, the retreat. Just a little bit. I'll give you a brief bit of, it, bit of it. So I just used logic and reasoning, didn't I? What color is logic? What color is it? Yeah. What color is the number? What, what, how much does the number 8 weigh? Yeah, Yeah. right? So, <laughs> so those, those seem like nonsense questions. But everybody in the world, including atheists, lives their lives according to the laws of logic, and they get mad because they think we're breaking them. They're like, well, you can't do that. It's not logical. It's not scientific. Well, science is nothing but based upon math, right? Math is the language of the universe. It's how we understand the cosmos and the light coming from the sun and how long it takes and all that stuff. I don't understand any of that, right? But math is how we communicate all that stuff. But math is not material, is it? Math doesn't weigh anything. So in an atheist worldview, all there is is material things. They can't explain the logic that they're using. They have no... there's no foundation for them. There's no reason their logic should actually work because the universe is just randomness, right? Time plus chance plus matter, you get this, right? Fish become philosophers if you give them enough time. right? That, that is the atheistic worldview. And you say, well, I, I want to know why you think logic actually matters, and it's not just your opinion. And they, there is no justification from an atheistic worldview about why logic works. Now my, you might not all know the laws of logic, like the laws of non-contradiction and all that stuff, but we know math, right? Two plus two. Sixteen. See? There we go. Right? Public school. Alright. High five. Yeah. Right? Oh, homeschool. Even better, right? Uh, We're glad you made it here. Uh, um, I don't know what that joke means, but people laughed anyways. Um, So, so 2 plus 2 is 4. Was it the same yesterday? Is it going to be the same tomorrow? Okay, is it the same in China as it is in the U.S.? Right, so it's unchanging. It doesn't change. It's universal. No matter where you go, 2 plus 2 is 4, but it's immaterial. So how do you get an unchanging, universal, immaterial law if all there is is the natural world? You don't. It is literally impossible for atheism to account for mathematics and logic. Here's what they say. They say, well, it's axiomatic. You might not, you may know what axiomatic means. Okay, so I didn't either. <laughs> I was debating the president of the Freethinker Society of New York. It was like a humanist organization. And we were having this discussion. He goes, I was like, you need to explain to me why you want me to use logic, and it's not just your opinion that I should. And he goes, well, it's axiomatic. I'm like, Google axiomatic. It basically means it's a necessary beginning, but we can't explain why. I go, oh, you have faith. You have faith in logic but yet you're mad at me for having faith in God that creates logic. He's like, no, I don't have any faith. I'm like, okay, explain why logic works. It just does. We can't explain it. It's axiomatic. I'm like, I don't think that word means what you think it means, right? <laughs> you think that's an answer and all you're doing is taking one step back and go, we don't know why. Logic and mathematics does not work unless there is a God. Unless there is a God, you can't ask. Is there a God? Right? Because that question involves logical thinking. As soon as an atheist says, "Um, I need evidence that there's a God, you go, great, there you go. Because without God, you can't prove anything. Think about it this way. Have I lost you yet? Okay, no. So if there is no God, your brain is nothing but a chemical reaction. Think of yourself like a computer. Your DNA is the program. Your surroundings and your environment is the input. Whatever happens around you interacts with your DNA and you respond that way. So according to atheism, and some of the top uh, atheists right now will say this, that there is no real free will. Everything is kind of determined by your biology. Sam Harris, um, who's one of the most popular atheists right now, he'll say this. He's a total determinist, that there is no free will. I'm like, then how do you know that's true? Then why are you trying to tell me I shouldn't be a Christian? I had no choice. I was just, my DNA made me a Christian. Your DNA made you an atheist. It's nonsense. But they can't see that. Romans tells us that everybody knows the truth, but they deny it because of, they suppress the truth because of their unrighteousness. That everybody knows there is God. What is the proof that God exists? Because without him, you can't prove anything. So I can build on that foundation and say, okay, I know there's a God, but how does that get me to Jesus? Well, how many gods are immaterial, unchanging, universal, and constant? Right? That's, that's what mathematics, that's what logic is, that's uh, morality, the laws of morality. There are universal laws. Atheism will try to say that there is no absolute morality. Then, then why did we invade Germany to stop Hitler hey, that was their social construct. It, it felt good for the Nazis to do that. If they choose to do that, why, why would I want to interfere? Let every society be their own, right? No, we intervene because we say it doesn't matter what your society says is moral and just, there is a higher law. In fact, there were SS soldiers who were taken before the World Court and their argument was what your generation is living right now, postmodernism. Which is, whatever you feel to be true is true. However, you feel determines what truth is. And that was their excuse. They said, hey, for us it was okay. You know what the world court said? We don't care what you think. Your feelings do not determine truth. There is a higher power. Our culture today could not condemn Nazi Germany because we have let go of the higher power. But then we could. So morality, there is an absolute moral law. So, in order, we have all these things that we experience in our life, these immaterial, unchanging, universal constants. That means we're going to need an unchanging, immaterial, universal God who's the same yesterday and today and tomorrow, who's not made of matter, who exists outside of time and space. How, how do you, what, what, what gods fit that? Well, you can get rid of all Eastern gods, right? All the isms, Hinduism, Buddhism, None of them fit that criteria. You're literally reduced down to three. You have three options. The God of the Old Testament, the Jewish faith, the Muslim faith, or Christianity? Right? Those are the only ones that fit that criteria. Guess what? They're all trying to piggyback off the same God. So, right. Did I miss some of you on that, right? You got it? So there's only three choices about which God is actually the real God that could create the universe that we live in. It's either Judaism, Muslim faith, or Christianity. Well, the resurrection of Jesus Christ makes a pretty good argument for Christianity, I think. In fact, I think we can be certain about it. Muhammad is still dead. Buddha, I don't know why we wouldn't learn self-discipline from a 400-pound guy anyways, but, you know, I don't (laughs) know. But all these other gods are still dead. And so just by that way, we've gone from, is there a God? Yes, there has to be a God. God is required in order for us to make sense of the universe that we live in. And very quickly, you can get to the truth of Jesus Christ. So I want us to be skeptical. But I also want you to have a firm foundation that you can build on. We know that Jesus Christ is God. He's a personal God. In fact, I think that's one of the requirements for this universe that we live in. We do not live in a world where God is impersonal. It seems as though He is very involved. He is maintaining the gravity and the air that you breathe every single second, right? Amen. We, we, we need to be skeptical. And one of the great ways you can be skeptical, this is a question I love to ask. How has, how has the Western America, how has Western thought influenced Christianity? We've corporatized it, haven't we? We've made, like, McChurch, right? <laughs> we franchise churches now, right? Like, people say, you know, like, hey, are you going to open up another campus and have your face on a video screen? I'm like, I'm not that proud of myself, right? I think there's other people who can do what I do, right? There's other people that can do this. And I'm not saying that's always bad. I'm not bashing any church for that. But we have franchise church. There's a very Western way of thinking. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, right? We apply that to Christianity. You struggle alone. You're going to pull yourself up by yourself. That kind of "I'm going to do it on my own" is not a Christian mentality. The I self individual mentality that we all have with our iPhones. I was going to say iPods, <laughs> right? Like, where were you 10 years ago, Caleb? Um, right. But this is this is the culture that we live in. It's all about doing it yourself. You can be self-made, self famous, right? Whatever. That is not a Christian mindset. You are not an independent being. You were created to be dependent. Don't believe me? Make your own oxygen. right? It's over with real quick. Everything you do from the first breath you breathe is dependent upon the God who created the universe. You are meant to be dependent, not just dependent upon God. But scripture also says, do not forsake the gathering of believers, that we are supposed to be dependent upon each other. One of the things I yearn for as a pastor, one of the things I would like to see happen before I die, is I'd like to see at least just the church that I pastor gain a level of openness that shocks and scares the outside world. I would like to see deacons stand up and say, hey, I've been struggling with pornography. I would like to see one of our deaconesses say, well, not that I know if they do or not, but like say, you know what, I've been struggling with alcohol. I would like to see somebody walk in the door and go, I heard this is a safe place to say I'm a heroin addict. And it's like if I say it out loud here, you won't condemn me, but you will help me. But churches are so much so of this hi how are you bless you bless you great how are you doing right and so i would be around these people every sunday and they're great they're great and the next week where are they oh they got a divorce no one knew they were even struggling because they kept it to themselves church we can't be affected by western thought we must reclaim the bible for what it is and that begins by asking questions. Being a good, healthy skeptic and not some YouTube irrational hyper-skeptic, right? Okay, so um, I want to leave some time for some questions. Is that good? So um, does anybody have, um, is there any questions that you just maybe about faith or religion or, uh, we had some great talks about Mormonism last time we were together. Mormonism is my favorite thing ever. Uh, I, I, I... I've been studying it for years and years and years, and uh, yeah. Um, but, yeah. I actually have a written question because I had a yeah. conversation uh, two days ago with a friend that I went to BCM with, and he's been struggling, I guess, for like the last couple of years over Job's story. Ah, wow. Yes. Uh, and I I don't know, like I'm in I'm in an apologetic class right now at seminary and I'm like I don't know how to answer you without sounding churchy and I have to figure out how to answer this. Um but yeah, basically he just has just been struggling with this idea that that God just kind of like uses Job as an experiment and like just lets Satan have fun, you know. Right. And like how do you you know, and then he starts, Well, is my life just an experiment to God? Right how do you answer that? Yeah. Hey, I love that somebody's wrestling with that. You know, Job is most likely the oldest book in the Bible, which I think that's a weird one for God to start off with, right? (laughs) Like, we're going to start with the story of Job. But really, it's the catalyst for how we understand what kind of God is this. And we often think that Job is perfect and doesn't really make any mistakes. There is a mistake Job makes in there. And it's all kind of, what kind of God is it going to be? So, um, Satan comes... And uh, we don't really know it's Satan, okay? If you read Job, it doesn't say Satan. It says the accuser. Now, accuser is where we get the term Satan, right? Satan from. But we don't know if it's that one, right? We don't know if it's that guy. But he goes, he says, have you considered Job? And Satan's like, well, he only likes you because you do nice things for him. And so it's one of the questions that get asked a lot in faith is what kind of God is this? Is he like the... Um, name-it-claim-it God, where if you're good, he does good things for you. And Job's friends have this view of God that you must have done something wrong, and that's why you're getting punished. And Job has the idea that he's, um, there's a verse I'm trying to remember off the top of my head, uh, where Job begins to point some blame elsewhere. And even though he, he does good for the most part, he's got a paradigm shift that needs to break. And so this is basically God setting the course of history forward, going, this is the kind of God that I am. And so there's a a triangle, and there's God is good. Um, Then over here we have like, if you're good, God does nice things for you. And Job is over here is like, I love God, so, um, or if you sin, bad things happen. And if you're good, God will do nice things for you. I'm trying not to confuse you because I'm trying to remember this in my head as well. Um, and they have this kind of view of God that God basically just comes in and shatters, right? He just destroys it. And it's not just a punishment against Job. All of Job's friends have a really hard time with this as well. But what he's just doing is saying, you've all got the wrong God. You've all got the wrong God, thinking that as long as you do good, only good things happen. Well, like we talked about at the very beginning, does that rule apply to Jesus, no, Jesus was the most good and had the most bad done to him, right? And so this is the reality that God has said. I, like, we want, we read that and we go, man, that seems really mean of God. But he's like, no, I'm showing you the kind of world you live in. And if you have the wrong view of me, if your expectation is wrong, you're going to struggle and walk away. So what I'm going to do from the very beginning is show you the real kind of God I am. This world sucks and bad things happen, but I'm still a good God. Right? And so it's just a shattering of all the different kind of paradigms that they had, of what they thought God should be like. And at the end, uh, which I, I love, um, God is, because it, it's it's a weird book to love, but I've learned to love Job. He just goes through and he's like, Job, where were you when I did this? Where were you when I made the mountains? Where were you? Yeah, I thought, you can't even barely make a sandwich. I made the universe. <laughs> and... <laughs> It is, it is there, there are hard questions. What we tend to want is we want the Bible to resolve as though it's an episode of The Office, where there's a problem at the beginning and it gets solved at the end. Does your life work that way? You, look, life, life doesn't necessarily like, resolve itself at the end of a 30-minute period. There are cliffhangers and there's things that are left to try to figure out. And the Bible doesn't always resolve in the nice, neat little package that we want, which is one of the reasons I say, man, that makes it true, right? Like, this is one of the ways I know Scripture is real, because it's not trying to placate me and make me just feel nice. It's giving me truth, and sometimes that truth I don't understand. It's, it's, it's okay to say, you know what, I'm not sure, but always follow that, but let me go find out, right? So you're like, no, that's tough. Um, there's uh, J.P. Moreland, I believe, is the one who has a great teaching on um, Job. I'll try to find it. and I, I, I've done a teaching. If you email me or find me on Facebook later, and I'll send you my notes on it that talk about the paradigm and how they all shift. Because that really helped me, because it is a tough question. Because everybody was always like, Oh, but God gives Job back his more kids. I'm like, But he's, his kids are still, like, the other ones are still dead. So... <laughs> I'm like, it doesn't necessarily like, oh, it's okay now, right? Yeah, so, good. Any other? Yeah? Okay, i talked to some people before. They say that the Bible contradicts itself. Oftentimes. Do you the Bible does not contradict itself? Or that... Ask for examples. Um, okay. ask you? No, them, yeah. Because that's a real easy thing to throw out. And you go, give me three examples. And all of a sudden they're going, well, they they can't, Right? Um, it, you can make anything contradict itself if you take it out of context. But no, I don't think the Bible contradicts itself. I, I've read it through numerous occasions, and I've yet to find people like, oh, the God in the Old Testament is mean, and in the New Testament, he's awfully nice. Yeah, he's the same as if you read the New Testament, there's Jesus says some pretty rough things. Like, Are you so <laughs> right, I'm like, I think sometimes the New Testament is a lot harsher than the Old, so... Yeah. Good question, though. Yeah. I would say, see, like, we get on, we get defensive really quick, and they're like, oh, I don't know. We should play a little bit of offense. They go, oh, you think it contradicts itself? What areas? Because oftentimes, they're just saying things that they've heard, and they haven't actually thought through it themselves. They just don't want to be a Christian. And so they have, like, these basic, and I call them, like, the YouTube atheist level things they throw out, right? Right? Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, this is the problem I was talking about with Christians earlier. Okay. Yeah. Good. What strategies do you have biblically for ministering to or coming alongside of somebody who has either or is either struggling with unbelief or has embraced unbelief? What are the strategies? Obviously, it's not on our power, but just what. Right. Uh, Well, like the biblical strategy uh, is there is no strategy. Uh, Western thought again, what are the four steps I can do to solve this problem, right? And I understand that. Um, The way to do it, my friends who are not believers, is I just hang out with them and I love them the way Jesus would and I answer questions, right? So I'm like, well, what made you... Because look, one of the reasons I left the faith wasn't because I read something that made me want to leave it. It's because my youth pastor killed himself. I mean, that's a pretty good reason to leave. But it's not an intellectual one. And most people will say they have an intellectual one. If you just probe a little bit, it's not intellectual at all. It's emotional. Right? I mean, that's most of you are Christians not because of an intellectual thing, but because of an emotional one. So I understand that. I'm not some... Like, I didn't go to college. Um, I, I'm not an intellectual guy. Um, you can read books and stuff right but I'm an emotional guy so I understand the emotion side but I also know my emotions have crap for brains so my gut instinct has not led me good places in the past so I just don't trust it I just don't trust myself so I go to God's Word so I just ask questions you know Jesus asked uh, somewhere around 360 questions so if people would come to him they go well what about this And you just be like what about this you just ask a question so I think asking a question Instead of just going, well, here's the answers that you need, finding out what the real issue is just by asking questions goes a real long way. Like, what made you want to leave? Like, what? And they say, well, I don't think the Bible is true. Well, why do you say that? Well, because the telephone game, right? Y'all know what that is? Where you say something and you pass it along. Well, that happened to the Bible. You can prove that wrong. So, I mean, we found a book of Isaiah, the Dead Sea Scrolls, a thousand years older than the oldest copy that we had, and it's identical to the one that we had. Textual criticism is a science and we know 99.9% of what the originals were and wherever there might be what's called a textual variant, where there might be something that's like a little bit off, none of them affect theology at all. We've got more manuscript evidence for the New Testament than any other historical document ever, right? Now, there are errors in some of these. There are points where people were copying the Bible and they fell asleep, and we can see the scribe go with his pen, right? Like, he fell asleep. That's called a textual variant, right? I'm glad there's textual variants, and then I'm glad we know where they all are, because there's a verse that says that we should hold snakes and drink poison. That's That's not in the original. That shouldn't be in your Bible, right? That is not Scripture. And all your Bible should say, there should be a little note there that says, this is not found in the earliest manuscripts. And we're all glad about that one, but you know the woman caught in adultery, he without sin cast the first stone? That's not in your Bible either. Sorry. It's not in the earliest manuscripts. Right? We all love that story, but so it's hard to get rid of that one. But We find that sometimes in Luke, sometimes it's in Mark in the earliest editions, it moves around. So we, it's in there, but there should always be a note. This is not found in the earliest manuscripts, which means, and we've known this, and it's not like a new thing that we figured out. So Christians have known and have kept record of all this stuff, for a really, really long time. Yeah, you can. There's great books on how we got the Bible. Uh, Dr. James White, Alpha Omega Ministries. Um, but yeah, textual criticism is great. And a lot of Christians don't know that stuff. Is that new to any of you guys? Yeah. Yeah. So look, look up when you get home. Look up the Holden snakes one, and then look up the woman caught in adultery, and you'll find right in there. There's a note in every single one of your Bibles. It says this is not in the. Early. Does that mess with anybody? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. so, well, there's, there's a couple of different things, um, there's a couple of different theories. Like, especially with a woman caught in adultery, it's likely that it happened. They say, well, it's, it's possible that it happened, and a scribe had heard that story so many times, and oftentimes what would happen, and we can kind of trace the history of how so many of these things get in there, because what they would do is they would put a margin note. So they would write on the <coughs> margins. And they'd like, oh, I wish this story was in there. And then while Christians are being persecuted trying to make manu- copies of the New Testament, like they're in caves by candlelight, and one guy puts it in there. And all of a sudden, when it gets it passed on, they go, that's in there, right? And so, but if you have the earliest copies, you know what should and should not be in there. So there's only a few of those. That's like Those are the two major ones, so I don't think there's like half the Bible is uh, textual variants. So those are the two major ones. Um, but yeah, so is it... Is it truth? It could be, but I would not say that it's God inspired. Hmm. I know I'm sad too, right? Because as a kid, that was always, I was like, I wonder what he wrote in the sand. Yeah. <laughs> We've had that conversation a few times. Yeah. What, what did he write in the sand? Usually, we end up with like a lot of different opinions on like what yeah. he actually wrote here. Right? Yeah. <laughs> he wrote, "Y'all are sinners too." Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I Horns down. The, yeah. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Now, now, but 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 let's think of something, though. Does taking that out affect the theology of Scripture at all? Does it have any impact on the truth of who Jesus is? No, not at all. And, and the thing is, is your pastor should have told you, if your pastor went to seminary, he learned this a long time ago, and um, if I've preached through Matthew, I tell our church, we're skipping this part, right? <laughs> it's not in there, right? And we move on, but... Anything else? Hi. Hey, Luke. (laughs) (laughs) This is like my second time coming to this. Cool. uh, I worked at Falls Creek with this guy. Right. And we got back in August. And I haven't really been to church in like two months. I just haven't really been able to get back in it. And uh, I just keep sinning over and over again um, as we do every day. Right. I feel like I'm not good enough anymore. Uh, How do you... How do you dig yourself out of that trench and just get back on track? Yeah, great question. So, um, how good do you have to be to maintain your salvation? Right, right, right. So, so I was down here when God saved me, right? Like, totally dead, um, and He saved me. So, I can't go lower than dead, right? He's made me alive, so I don't have to ever worry about losing my salvation. So, I, I don't necessarily know if it's a sin problem. It could be a love problem, Right? And we will choose, we always pursue happiness, right? No matter what, you're pursuing what makes you happy right now. Uh, Blaise Pascal, uh, who invented geometry, swell guy, uh, he says that no matter what you do, it always leads, you're always seeking your own happiness, even if you hang yourself. That the person who hangs himself is trying to make themselves happier because their life is so bad. No matter what you do, you're pursuing happiness. So the question I would ask is not, how can I stop sinning? And so why do you believe these things make you happier than it would be if you were wholly following Jesus Christ? Do we believe that these things are better saviors than Jesus is? And so i do not sure if it's... We all think we have a sin problem. Well, we're always going to have a sin problem, but it's a love problem. Because the God that we've been introduced to is so small, we have a small amount of love for Him, right? And so you're going to struggle. But what I want to do is... I'm trying to do is to pursue holiness because I have found the more i have a relationship with god the better everything gets so i just go oh this makes me happier this is what we do when we do like um, counseling for drug addicts they love drugs i have to teach them to love something else more and as they begin to do that all of a sudden the drugs they used to love they start to hate there's replacement theology in scripture jesus does this all the time he doesn't tell people to stop stealing he says you used to steal now do this with your hands you used to put people down with your words now do this with your words so he replaces things So, I'd say whatever you're struggling with sin wise, you need to figure out what you can do to replace that with that will actually make you happy in the long run. You have um, sin is always an issue of idolatry, and we create our own gods, and it's a functional savior. And I'll explain what that means. Uh, If you go, women, you guys will testify to this, and guys can too. If you go to the grocery store and you're at the checkout lane, there's the impulse rack, right? It's got the magazines. And the girls' magazines, uh, they have a, a beautiful girl on there, and so you automatically feel like insecure, but then they're going to solve that problem, right? Because they said, this is what happiness looks like, and if you're not that, don't worry, this magazine can fix it for you, because there's going to be 10 ways to be bikini, bikini ready before summer, right? Mm-hmm. How How to diet this thing or whatever, right? And so all that is done, this is what the world does over and over again. It creates a false idea of hell, oh my gosh, it would be so hellish to be that big. It would be be so hellish to be alone. So this magazine is going to say, how to get a boyfriend. Because your idea of hell is being single, or whatever it is. And guys, we have the same thing. Our hell is not being respected, or not being cool enough, or not being tough. So our magazines, what do they look like? Well, they got a hot girl on there, and there's always something shiny and loud. It's either a car or a gun, right? There's a girl in a bikini holding a gun for some reason. We're like, I need that magazine, right? Because our hell is different than girls' hell. So you have a hell, and you're like, man, it would be the worst to be this. And then you will find a savior to fix that. See, what we need to be focused on is the real hell, and then we look for a real savior who can actually fix it. Because I don't know how many times you've sinned, and then all of a sudden you go, oh, I I don't feel like I'm in heaven. (laughs) It's like, that didn't fit the need that I was looking for. Actually, I just feel worse, so I'm going to go find another functional Savior to save me for the next 30 minutes, right? And so, the world is designed to tempt you with false saviors, and all of a sudden we find ourselves in this pattern of habitual sin, and looking everywhere else but to God for our problems. Does that help at all? Yeah, Yeah, man. I appreciate the honesty. That's what I'm looking for. Good job. Love it, Luke. Good job. Anybody else? Yeah? No, they're not. <laughs> right. He's like yeah. always like, yeah. he's all about like science and stuff. Yeah, like yeah, so is God. Exactly. Yeah. So that's what I keep telling you. Yeah. Yeah. So, so <coughs> there's, this is the thing, is what is his ultimate justification for science? Right? So, I don't want to get to, so Hume, the famous atheist Hume, Said that uh, an atheist cannot say that the future will be like the past because there is no ultimate order to the universe. There is nothing holding the universe together. So an atheist has no justification for believing that the sun will come up tomorrow, right? He has science is all about um, all these chemicals work together magically and you can repeat it, right? But if there is no God, then the universe is chaos. Everything is time plus chance plus matter. That's it. So I would say, why do you love an ordered universe with, without God? There is no real order. It's just time plus matter plus... It's just chaos everywhere, right? The universe is spiraling out of control. Our sun's eventually going to disappear and you'll be back to dust. See, people say things, but they don't really mean it. Because if there is no God, then you have no more worth and value than a cockroach. You're just a different species. But I would say, you know what, I, I, I love each of you more than I love cockroaches. Aren't you glad? I don't even know you. Some of you could be jerks, but I still love you more than a cockroach. Why? Because you're created in the image of who? God. So, he has, so ask the ultimate questions. What is your ultimate justification for why science works? Science shouldn't work in an atheistic worldview. Why does morality work? Why does logic... He's like, oh, do you like science, so you must love math and logic. Yes. What is your ultimate justification? Uh, You can uh, listen to Greg Bonson. Greg Bonson is... um, This method that I use is called presuppositionalism. Right? I'm a presuppositionalist. That's a fun word. Um, But it just means we presuppose things. So before we get into a conversation about evidence, I want to say, why does evidence matter? And this just takes one step back. Because everybody, if you're talking with an atheist, what's he going to do? He's going to bring all his evidence, and you're going to bring all your evidence. And you're going to say, I can show God exists, and i got all this evidence. But if I'm showing it to your friend, I'm making your friend the judge of whether or not God has done a good enough job to prove himself. How much time does God spend in the Bible trying to prove that he exists? Zero. Because without God, you can't prove anything, Right? So instead of getting into these back and forth about, well, here's my evidence, well, here's my evidence, why, why why does proving anything prove anything? So I would go to YouTube. <laughs> you can find him on there, but I would much rather you buy the book. Uh, he passed away many years ago. Um, Greg Bonson, and he's not the first one who did it. Cornelius Van Til was an early church father. We've been doing this approach to apologetics for thousands of years, right? Evidentialism came popular in the 19th century where we were like, Here's all the science to prove God exists, which is good. I like both of it. You can do both. But yeah. Yeah, cuz like, he's always like trying to like like you said like he's always trying to bring his evidence and everything and I'm just like but like, God made everything. So. Right, yeah. Well, do your research and ask those ultimate questions. We got time for one more? I mean you're college kids, what are they doing? They got nothing. We'll do one more and then if they want oh,
1: okay. to ask Okay.
0: Okay. Yes. Sure. About women being pastors, particularly when Paul's talking about women may not exercise authority over men or elders in the church. Mm-hmm. Now, some arguments are casing that Paul it's outdated, you know, it's wrong, or it's just a letter of a particular church where he's talking to Timothy. What are your thoughts on that? If you want to get real crazy, the Bible might even suggest that women can be elders. I don't know. It all depends how you translate a certain word, right? Priscilla was uh, outstanding among the elders, right, or uh, among the apostles. We have women who are considered apostles, or it was uh, she was considered outstanding by the apostles. It's all how one word gets translated. So um, what about women leadership roles in church? This is where, uh, A, it's not really that tricky, especially if we remove some of the veneer of about what we've made a pastor. So God never gives somebody a spiritual gift and then tells them they can't use it. So what we have done is said, well, the preacher is the one who stands up there, and anybody standing on a stage, right, uh, they are preaching. And since only men can be preachers, then women can't get on the stage. But I don't see that in Scripture at all. Uh, What we do see is, yeah... uh, uh, in fact, the correct translation is the woman, um, because he's talking about a specific individual who is causing a ruckus that she couldn't teach. She needed to be, she need to sit down and be quiet, right? She was causing a lot of problems. So um, Michael Heiser has some great stuff on this. Uh, so I think, and my church isn't progressive. I'm not, I'm not left leaning in any way, but we have women deacons, and I had to do a sermon, and I go, guys, there are women deacons in the Bible. I can't get around that. So right, like so we have women deacons, and I've really been trying to figure out where I feel on women elders. Um, I think there is uh, when it comes to elders, we have a church model that doesn't necessarily reflect what they were doing in the New Testament, right? We've corporatized it a little bit, and so we've kind of made it to where it's so hard for a woman to have. A say we we're like okay girls you can be in the nursery or the youth room and I married a strong woman and she's spoken for me before when I gotten sick and the church didn't catch on fire or burn into flames so she didn't say anything heretical right so she has her gifts and I want her to be able to use her gifts in the church forever. there is a verse that does see uh, in fact I want to say it's first Timothy I don't want to turn there but um, it talks about, there's one verse that has kept me from saying, yes, women can be lead pastor, teacher, whatever you want to call it. There's only one. And it's in the qualifications um, for elder and deacons. When it goes to deacons, it does deacons and women deacons. Sometimes it's translated wives. Uh, there's some translation stuff going on there, but... Uh, when it comes to elders, it doesn't mention elders' wives. It's just the elder. And so I do think that role of governing and overseeing, which doesn't mean preaching. An elder can be an elder without preaching. You can preach without being an elder. Now, an elder must be able to preach according to the New Testament, right? Let me bring all this back home. So I think the reason that that rule exists is because the overseeing work of overseeing a church is time consuming you see the disciples spending so much time taking care of the needs that they had to get deacons which were just table waiters right so it's not a position of power or authority it's a servant if a woman was having children she would feel herself torn between do i spend my time raising my kids or all my time overseeing the church my wife is with my children right now now i give them as much time as humanly possible but i couldn't spend as much time with the church as i do if I had her role, and she couldn't spend as much time with the kids if she had my role. So I think that there's just a balance there, and I I think it's in the same... I I don't see it as discriminatory, because if a woman has the ability to teach, I think she should teach. It's just when you get into what does this word elder and when we think of preacher mean. Now, that is my opinion, right? So do your research and figure it out. (laughs) Be skeptical and then figure it out. Yeah. I'm probably half the room disagreed with me on that one, but, yeah, yeah. Because I tried. I wasn't trying, I don't. I wasn't trying, well, oftentimes what I'll do is I'll take a point of view that I disagree with, and then I'll try to make myself believe that, right? Like, I'll try to argue it to see if I can see their argument, and I, I wasn't, like, looking to go that way. I'm never looking to, like, gravitate towards a more liberal view. I'm not trying to do that. I'm just, like, I wonder what their argument is, and then so I just delve really deep into it, and I go... You know, I see their points. There are some good points. I have this one verse. I have this problem. And I can't go as far as some people do. So that usually puts me in a healthy middle. Right? One more. Anything from this side? You guys are awfully quiet over here. What are you um, touching? Is, this is a Hungarian street trolley. I got baptized in the Danube um, when I got saved. This is an old school building because it's an old school education. Uh, Since I didn't go to college, my dad, I used to tell him, because I'm a pastor and I'm around other pastors who've got like PhDs. And he says, what do I say when they ask me where I went to school? And he always said, tell them you went to the school of Mary. And so I tell people, I went to the school of Mary. And they're like, oh, where's that at? I say, at the feet of Jesus. Because Mary sat there and she got her education from Jesus. He says, you didn't go the normal route of an education. You went through mentoring. And so I've surrounded myself with some really smart, good, godly guys and women, and they've poured into my life. So I have an old school education. There's a map of Israel that I got right before I went to Israel, just in case I got lost. Um, (laughs) That's my ATM pin, don't tell anybody. Um, And uh, there's like a scissor tail flycatcher and stuff. But yeah, so those are those.